There's a wonderful saying, the past is prologue, meaning we're not coming to the end of a cycle. This is only the beginning. Time of grace is going to go on far past me, and I celebrate with you the fact that we have got new energy, new ideas all bubbling up, and the next era of Time of Grace is going to be even bigger and better than the first. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? If God is supremely loving and God can do anything, why couldn't he just forgive us and forget about the past? Why did there have to be a cross, a sacrifice, a Jesus who gave up his life? Pastor Jesse is going to answer those questions for us next on Time of Grace. I wonder if you could imagine what it would have been like to invite a friend to come to church here 130-some years ago when the place was being founded, when this was the edge of town. You know, there were lots of uh, unusual customs back then as well, too. Someday, maybe not today because you have such nice clothes on today, but someday when you're here in the sanctuary, get down on your knees and stick your head underneath the pews. And there, besides all the old ancient bubblegum, what do you think you're going to see? Hat racks on the outer pews only. The inner pews do not have hat racks. Do you know why? They had gender separation back then. And here's my question, like, why? It makes no sense. Today we think it's ridiculous. We stopped doing that long ago. In fact, that custom is so long gone, I don't even remember in my really young years hearing the old timers talk about it. But you know what? Some people think that there's more stuff that needs to be gotten rid of, and they find aspects of not just the the, the style of gathering and the style of worship, they not only find that to be outmoded and obsolete, but they have found aspects of the very message itself that they find irrational or too much to believe or not in line with what they have decided. They think God should be like or what he should be doing or have done that they think is appropriate activity for God. And certainly, the behavioral expectations from you and from me. They've started to jettison things such as the idea of a blood atonement. That God could actually be angry enough to have a hell, is going to run the entire human race through his court and judge them all, and that he's angry enough to announce capital crimes. And there's capital punishment in God's court. People find that to be very savage and old school and déclassé, just beneath us. They're into the more Mr. Rogersy kind of uh, Christianity where people just are supposed to be nice to each other. That's what our message really is. Share with each other, be nice, and get rid of all of the human nastiness, kind of clean up the messes in our world. I'm here to tell you that the greatest threat to the idea of the blood atonement does not come from the outside, it comes from the inside. It is like a, a sickness from within. And the, the chief wrong in all of this is that people are saying, I want to decide for myself what I think is reasonable about God. I want to define my God in terms that make sense to me. I will decide what he has done that has relevance to me. I will decide if the Bible says he did something that I don't think he would have done because it's not in alignment with my mental image of the God I, I choose to follow 
And I choose to structure my religious life in terms that make sense to me. In other words, by seeming to elevate reason, which is a good thing. Reason is good. God made you with a brain. But when reason trades places with scripture, and instead of reason opening up to receive information from God, when that changes places and our brains, our peanut brains, tell, uh, sit in judgment on, on the Bible and tell God what we think in there we can accept that makes sense to us, that is spiritual suicide. That is Russian roulette. And throwing stuff like the blood atonement out is spiritual suicide, and you need to take this seriously. You need not to let Satan steal your confidence in the blood atonement. I'd like to invite you to look at Hebrews chapter 9, just so you're sure this isn't just me talking. I want you to hear God talking about the importance of the washing of the blood, the blood as the center. It's not peripheral. It is at the center of our spiritual lives. In Hebrews 9, um, there's the second half of the chapter is a sizzling essay on the importance and power of the blood atonement that you need to engage with. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to shrink this down to be a little more bite-sized for us in the few minutes we have together. And I just couldn't think of a way. So I'm going to sort of hop through it. But please, this afternoon or tomorrow, please read this whole chapter real slowly and savor it and let it speak to and inform your faith. And humble yourself before the word instead of making the word humble itself before you. Don't go at this thinking, what, what in here do I find believable? Humble yourself and say, what does God have to say to me? In Hebrews 9, let's start at verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He had in his younger days, but now at Calvary, he entered the most holy place, the place where the glory of God lives once and for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The tabernacle, the tent church when the Israelites were traveling, and then the bigger building that Solomon built for the glory of God and then was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and then re-rebuilt by King Herod. Those were fixed places that were temporary stand-ins for the reality. They symbolized heaven and the interface between God and people. And the signal fact about it, it was not a place where you could go to church. In fact, the most important thing about the temple was that you couldn't go in it. Talk to the hand. Back off. Come only so close and stop. It's like uh, the warning signs in front of a high power substation that is jizzling and sizzling with uh, hundreds of thousands of volts of electricity that could kill you. Back away, stay back. Only the priests were allowed to step in to the praying place, and only the high priest, and then only once a year, could go into the most holy place, the place where the golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, was located. Only through the shedding of blood could the words of forgiveness be given. So God gave a visual demonstration to people that sin in his presence is a capital crime, that he's angry enough to put to death the sinner. 
and he wanted people to watch this slaughtering going on. You can mock that as slaughterhouse religion if you want, but the fact is there it is. God didn't put it there for you to evaluate and see if you find it reasonable. He gave it to tell you something you need to know about yourself. And it's not just humanity in general that has a problem with him. Every individual being born with the disease has the disease and it will express itself in evil thoughts, evil desires, evil words, and evil deeds. And without some sort of intervention that will kill us physically and everlastingly in hell. God doesn't tell you about hell to see if you think do you find that reasonable? Do you find that fair? Do you, can you sit in judgment on God's decisions? Are you the arbiter? Are you God's judge to decide when or when not he's being fair? Do you have the arrogance to stare at God and say, I'm smarter than you are? This, after all, is my world, and you bend to what I find reasonable? Honestly, seriously, do you have the nerve to say that? Do you have the stupidity and recklessness and suicidal impulse? To say that to your maker? Is it not far more appropriate for you to say, talk to me and explain what's going on here. Help me get reality. Arguing with, with God's judgment is like arguing with gravity. It's there whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not. Gravity keeps your feet stuck to the ground regardless of your understanding or approval of its force. You just stick to the ground. It's there. It is simply a reality. The judgment of God is a reality. Here's what's so impossible to rationalize, of course, that simultaneous with his passionate judgment and his anger, simultaneously he's the tenderest, most loving life force in the universe. He loves far greater than you are able to love. He loves far more than your brain can ever understand. And those two things, side by side, are a paradox. And if you try to diminish either one, you are cutting God into little pieces and you have nothing left but an idol of your own making. Here's the reality. That animals were slaughtered so God could show, give a demonstration of the death of a substitute so that the sinner might go free. There's another paradox for you. Normally, the guilty are supposed to be convicted and punished and the innocent are supposed to go free. In God's divine setup, as, as um, symbolized by what was going on at the tabernacle and the temple, everything switched. There was a gigantic flip-flop in that innocent victims received a death sentence and the guilty were pardoned. And God made people watch that and reenact that over and over and over to pound it into their heads and especially in a, a pre-literate society when most of the people didn't have Bibles and couldn't read them if they did. This, these visuals communicated how you could have a good relationship with God. So there could be Sabbath, Shabbat. There could be peace between God and you. There could be hope. And so that when you would pray, the smoke of the incense would symbolize your prayers rising up to God and smelling sweet, just like the smoke of incense is sweet. So all of this was a prelude, was a placeholder till the reality came. Christ became the temple of God and his cross became the altar. He wasn't burnt up, he was crucified.
but the effect was the same. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them, means declare them to be holy, so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, dead works, dead acts, um, our suicidal impulses, so that we may instead serve the living God. Now, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. See what's at stake here? This is not, these are not just peripheral things that are optional accessories for your life as a believer. This is the core of it. This is everything, and your eternal destiny is hanging on what you do with the words right here from the book of Hebrews. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jump ahead to verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves. Just think of that. Some calf had to die because you were a jerk. Together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop. When you bundle those branches together, it's like a little whisk broom, like, or like a little uh, paintbrush, like a mason's masonry brush, kind of rough, coarse brush. He would dip it in, and he started splattering. The blood went everywhere, which is kind of crazy. You know, um, was your mother like mine? Who'd, she'd go ballistic if we got blood on our shirt. Yours too? It took me a while to figure that out. Like, Ma, I'll throw it in the wash. No! Come here! Right now, and she'd yank me by the collar and drag me in the bathroom. She says, cold water. It's got to be cold water. And she'd scrub it out quick. Why? We got to get it out before it sets. Ah, we have lots of good mothers in this crowd, I see. You got to get it out. Blood is one of the main stainers, permanent stainers of clothes. Isn't this a paradox? Isn't this crazy that the blood of Jesus, instead of staining you and making you even dirtier than you are, actually does the reverse? It's the ultimate bleach that can get out even the dirt of your own soul. The blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, he sprinkled the scroll. In other words, the very words that were read and all the people. He went around and everybody that held still for him, he would spray animal blood. It would hit you. It would get on your, get on your face, get in your hair, land on your clothes. But they stood there and took it, grateful to be splattered by the blood that wasn't theirs. We're spared by a substitute. Why do you think this was happening? To teach people that forgiveness with God and the favor of God and immortality come through the death of a substitute. And when you carry that, that is a symbol. Being sprayed with that blood is a symbol, symbolically shows your faith accepting the payment made by someone else. This was all setting people up for Calvary. Moses would say in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way he sprinkled with the blood the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Those humble things made with human hands had no power to do anything. But when they were rinsed and sprayed and sprinkled with that animal blood, they received temporary immunity because that blood was a, a stand-in and a placeholder for the blood of Christ. In fact, here's the big finale. In fact, verse 22, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Why? Read it with me. Without the shedding of blood. 
There you go. Now you see what's at risk when you, when you blow off the blood atonement of Christ as being an antique, being archaic, being, um, makes it sound like Christianity is a slaughterhouse religion. If you put yourself above the Bible and simply throw out whatever you don't care for or think fits into your mental scheme, then you have, are creating an idol. You are putting yourself above the very word of God. You're making yourself God's judge and you are spinning the barrel of that gun that you've got to your own head. Instead, don't let Satan steal your confidence in the blood atonement. Here are the takeaways that you need for your life. Number one, don't make up your own God. Pay attention to the one you have. Instead of trying to pound on him and get him to fit in your mold, how about letting him describe himself? He is outraged at human evil because he's outraged at the source of human evil, Satan. And all who are connected to Satan will perish with Satan. Satan is not the king of hell. He is prisoner number 000001. And his torment will be the worst of all. Those who follow him perish with him. Don't wait till you see these things happening to make up your mind. By then, it will be too late. Make up your mind now. Second, he's angry enough to take life. It's a capital crime. Don't argue with it. See that as a reality like the gravity that keeps your feet stuck to the ground. Three, let him also show you of his overwhelming compassion for people like you and me who are trapped in a rebellion that we didn't have full control over. You and I do not have the same ability that Adam and Eve did where we are equipped to say no to Satan. We were born already wanting to say yes to Satan and no to God. God is not surprised to see the sin in you. He knows you're all sinners. It's only a question of how and where and how you're going to sin today. He knows you will. He sees everything in your life and he knows it, but he loves you still. This is another takeaway. Yes, I am that bad. Don't get all attitude about that either. When you are not feeling well and you go to see a doctor and he puts you through a whole bunch of tests, what are you paying that doctor for? Let me ask you that. What are you paying him for? To make you feel good? What do you want for the money, the big dough you're shelling out to your personal physician? After all of the x-ray techs have been done reading the x-rays, after all of the scanning experts have interpreted everything, do you want to go in and he sits down with you, has a cocktail, um, put some soft music on, maybe do a little dancing, um, have the waitress bring over some hors d'oeuvres. He says, how are you feeling? How are you doing? You feeling, feeling kind of good. Is this fun? And, you, and he says, you are so good looking. Man, I love your outfit today. You're not paying the guy to make you feel good. It's not the point. Only an idiot would do that. Are you an idiot? Don't answer that. When you talk to your doctor and she comes over, what do you want from her? Tell me the truth. I need to know how I'm doing. What's wrong with me? Tell me the truth. We would hate it to be lied to by a physician. Why would you hate the Bible for telling you the truth about yourself? Because when, it, when you believe that truth, then you're ready for God's rescue, and that is that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins.
This is not on the edge of Christianity. This is not one of the, uh, one of the attachments or one of the optional items you can acquire if you feel like it. This is at the core. This is everything. Don't let Satan steal your confidence in the blood atonement. For through the blood of Christ, you are guaranteed the favor of God, not because of how you've lived, but in spite of how you've lived. Because of the blood of Christ, you have the forgiveness of your sins, something you could never earn, something you could never undo. It's given to you as a gift. That's the only way God will, will do it. It's a gift or nothing. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. All your life are just dead works, uh, Hebrews says. Works that lead to death. Let me give you my gift. Third, you are guaranteed immortality. Everything you can see around you is dying. Everything living passes back into the elements it's made of. There's nothing, there's no element in you, in your body, that isn't found everywhere else on this planet. You are made of the stuff of, our, of Mother Earth. And you're going back to it real soon. God guarantees to you, the same scripture that talks about the blood atonement says your immortality is linked because Christ, the Lamb of God, rose from the dead, and you will too. The only way that Easter has its power is that Good Friday went just before it. Don't run from the blood atonement. Don't be embarrassed about it. Don't talk around it. Don't water it down. Don't try to make it cool, because there's nothing cool about something that bloody. If you had watched the slaughter of an animal for the Passover and watched the blood spraying all over the place, there's nothing cool about that. It is a violent act of an angry God. But through that violent act, God's anger turns to forgiveness and love. And it is through the blood of Christ that you are cleansed, that you are free, that you have his favor, that you are forgiven, and that you are immortal. Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood my royal robe shall be, my joy beyond all measure. When I awake before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. With these I need not hide me, for there in garments richly wrought as your bride, I will be bought to stand in joy beside you. I wonder what you're going to do with this message to you from Hebrews 9. Now it's yours. Oh man, as a Christian, I love what Pastor Jeske just talked about. That Jesus had to technically die for us to be forgiven of our sins. For God to prove how serious sin is, how much it hurts people. And yet, as, as you heard, this wasn't just some intellectual, technical, theological message. This was a personal message from God. That Jesus didn't just have to do it, he did it. God's love for us was so great that he, he gave his one and only son. That's why we love him. It's why we follow Jesus. It's why time of grace has that, that word in it, grace, because we love the unconditional love of God that we find at the cross. I'll be back with you in a moment to pray. When we started, we were just a tiny, tiny little organization. In fact, organization is a compliment to our little ragtag group. I will never stop being grateful 
to this army of people who believed enough in the power of the messages of Time of Grace to continue with their sacrificial gifts. As Pastor Jeske prepares for the next chapter of his life beyond Time of Grace, he reflects on the humble beginnings of the ministry in his new book, When Grace Got Personal, where he remembers how God worked through individuals to share the timeless truths of Jesus through Time of Grace. When you give today, we'll send you this book along with Pastor Mike Novotny's book, The Neglected Spirit, which is about tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you give $50 or more, we'll say thanks with both of these books, plus Pastor Jeske's books, Straight Talk and More Straight Talk. All four of these books show how God transforms us and then allows his loving grace to flow through us to others. So call now to give and request your special resources. Call 800 661 3311, visit timeofgrace.org or text time to 313131. Jesus said that the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective. That when we ask our Heavenly Father in faith, according to his will, he will listen. And that's why we would love to pray for you and have you continue to pray for us. When we ask God to let his will be done among us, and his name be holy and hallowed among us. He, he listens, he answers, and he changes things. So if there's something in your life that you would love to see changed, we would love to pray for you. The death of Jesus has made us right with God. We, we are righteous people through faith, and we would love to lift up your faith and see it stronger as you fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus, his power, and his incredible love. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would never get used to the cross. As many times as we sing about it and read about it, as many depictions that, that we see of it, we, we would never stop marveling at the fact that you came down from heaven, not just to give us good advice, but to die and give us really good news. God, I don't know anyone in this world who would actually die for their enemies. So if you would die for their closest friends, and yet you did the impossible. You gave your life not when we were worthy of your love, but when we weren't. You loved us even before we loved you back. And for that, we are amazed at the cross. I pray, God, that the cross would break us, that it would humble us, that it would amaze us, that we would be people who would never tire of lifting up the cross of Jesus and lifting up our hands in worship. Thank you, Jesus, for the unique thing that, that you did. There's so many philosophies and so many religions that demand that we fix ourselves, that we get better. But you're the God who came down to earth to make it better in our place. That's why we love you. That's why we worship you. That's why we love to talk to you each day. It's your near name that we pray. Amen. The time of grace, I'm Pastor Mike Novotny. And because Jesus didn't just have to die, but he chose to die for you, our faith and our hope, our eternal life, it all starts now. I am absolutely thrilled to have a personal opportunity to express my thanks to you and my appreciation to all of you who have chosen to become Grace Partners. Together, you and I are on an amazing adventure through Time of Grace's print materials, through the broadcast of the television program, and through digital distribution through the internet. You and I together touch millions of people each month. Isn't that extraordinary? I want to say thank you. For our monthly donors, we invite you to consider yourself as a partner in spreading good news of God's grace. We call you our Grace Partners. If you have not yet become a Grace Partner, I'd like to invite you today to pray and consider becoming part of the team and joining the Grace Partners. 
I'd love to have you on the team. It all starts now. Mm. It all starts now. The time of grace. It all starts now. The preceding program was sponsored by the friends and partners of Time of Grace.